Did anyone read any of the Father Who Keeps His Promises that we gave to you last week? Did anyone read any of that? Oh, that's, oh, okay. I have, I have head shaking, but no hand raising, okay? Uh, head shakers uh, that you shake. What, have, what did you think? Okay, it's a lot. Okay. So he packs a lot in the intro, and then I think coming back to it will make a lot of sense. It really just talks about this. I guess it's like the big, big, big picture. I never ever thought about the Old Testament kind of laying the groundwork for establishing a family covenant. Like I've never looked at the Old Testament as like establishing the family. Right. Right. Which is which is the way God is presented in the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, that's what, when I before I ever studied the scriptures. Uh, this was many years ago before I actually started reading the Old Testament. That's my even as a Catholic, even as a cradle Catholic all my life. That was my understanding of God. And then once you start reading the scriptures and you actually start to see how loving God is. Now, I mean, there's times like a good parent, he has to punish and he has to kind of reprimand. And we see that. Um, we'll see that in the second half of when you read, when you get through the Father who Keeps His Promises. And we'll kind of talk about it a little bit tonight. Because, uh, again, I'm giving you guys kind of like the 35,000-foot overview of all of this. Uh, kind of giving you, and then there's a lot of holes that a father who keeps his promises will fill in. So yeah, very interesting when you actually start to read the old, read the Old Testament. Um, we actually have a study that we do here that's based on Scott Hahn's uh, Father Who Keeps His Promises. It's uh, uh, Genesis, bless you, from Genesis to Jesus, and it's based. It's kind of a it's a study we've done in the past on Tuesday mornings, and I've done it on Thursday nights as well. It's a study that literally goes through the covenants, and it was the notes kind of what. We, it was the program I used for last year, and then when I, when I looked back at it over the summer, and Lita and I talked, and Father Will and I would sit down and talk, we realized it was so, so detailed. For, I mean, it's hard to go through three covenants in one night with you, like last week. Now, of course, I was delirious because I had a long weekend with my girlfriend and her family, and I was on a plane, so I was a little out of it last week. But it's hard to go through all of these covenants in one night. When I taught high school theology, You'd maybe go over all six of the all all the covenants or the big six covenants over a two and a half week period of high schoolers. So I'm breaking it more down and it's more detail and they're able to take notes and ask more questions. But for you guys, we only have these two nights to focus on the covenants. That's why we give you a father who keeps his promises to kind of fill in the holes. So it is it's a lot of information to first gather. But when you as soon as you start to read the Old Testament. You, the New Testament makes sense. I mean, Laura probably said that in her talk on divine revelation. Um, you, you can't read one or the other because they, they, they all make sense together. Even the sacraments, when you start to look at the seven sacraments, there's foreshadowings of the seven sacraments even in the Old Testament. Um, we have another study that's actually another Scott Hahn study. Um, what is it? The, I think it's called the Bible and the Sacraments. And it shows how from the Old Testament where all the all the sacraments really kind of began. And then as our Lord established them in the New Testament and the church, and then they grow organically 
over the last 2,000 years um, in the church, you, you, kind of, you kind of see that in that study. If you've never read it, it's a great book to read if you have time, and we give you a lot of books. Uh, Lita gives you guys a lot of books in this study. But if you have time, um, a lot, of, and actually Scott Hahn, who was a Catholic convert, read it. And I have friends that have also read it that are converts that were also Protestant at one point. It's called The Spirit of Catholicism by Carl Adam. Um, I read it in grad school in actually Hahn's class. Could not put it down. It was unbelievable. Now, as a Catholic, as a cradle Catholic who finally learned his faith in, say, yeah, the spirit of Catholicism by Carl Adam. It's actually Father Carl Adam, but it usually, it's usually just Carl Adam. It was written in the 1920s, um, and it's really interesting. If you've, ever read, if you've ever read anything by Blessed Cardinal Newman, or if you've ever read any of the Vatican II documents, it's almost like Carl Adam had read Newman, and then it was almost like he was foreseeing where the church was going, you know, probably 40 years, be 40 years ahead of where, you know, he's writing in the 20s, so Vatican II starts in 62. So it's like he's kind of 40, he's a little bit like 40 years ahead of his time, is what I'm trying to say. And um, so, yeah, very interesting. So it's a good book to read as, a, as someone that's seeking um, Catholicism. And I, I know probably, like I said, 10, probably, I mean, Han's one of them, but 10 people, at least 10 people that are now Catholic that used to be Protestant that read that book in their, either before their conversion or, or during their conversion. Because it's, it's, it takes, it kind of picks up uh, with Christ and the apostles, and then it, it shows how the church grew organically through the centuries. It's an excellent, excellent book. Um, and again... There are numerous people that I know that have written, um, that have read it, and are now that are now Catholic. So yeah, the co- the covenants, but reading the Old Testament's key. You you have to read the Old Testament. I, I have friends that I know that are Catholic, you know, Catholic all their life, like myself, that have even said to me, "What's the purpose of the Old Testament? We've got the New Testament. Do we really need the Old Testament?" And I'm like, "Yeah, are you kidding me?" course we need the old testament it gives us it leads us and directs us straight to uh jesus christ so um okay so tonight we're going to focus on on uh on moses david hit the prophets very briefly i mean like one slide and then go into jesus christ and again giving you kind of this 50 or thirty-five thousand foot overview uh in the hopes that you will read um you will read a father who keeps his promises uh, in the near future. Okay, so let me turn this on. All right, so the Mosaic Covenant. So the covenant, be, uh, the covenant begins with Moses. And uh, let's see, do I have, did I bring that? No, did I do that with you? Okay, so let's actually go to All right, so actually I forgot to put the covenant chart. All right, so let's fill in the Mosaic covenant chart here, and then David and the prophets will come, to, will come back. So Moses, you have Moses. Uh, then uh, his role is now judge. 
It takes place on Mount Sinai. Now we have a nation. So they go from a tribe with Abraham now to a nation. And the scripture verses are Exodus 19 through 24. And it actually fulfills Genesis 15. So we see Moses as the mediator. He's now, his role as judge takes place on Mount Sinai. We now go from a tribe to a nation. And from Exodus 19, Exodus 19 through 24. And it fulfills Genesis 15. All right. So I will come back to that. All right, so this is now picking up at the Mosaic Covenant. If you guys have ever seen the original Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, or um, th- how they get, how do they get into Egypt? Well, Abraham's descendants end up uh, uh, Israel and his his sons and their wives and their children uh, go through a fathom uh, of not fathom, listen to me. A, um, like a drought and a, uh, a lack of food. And fa- I said fathom instead of uh, yeah. famine. Yeah, that's right. I meant famine, not fat. Okay. So a famine. And they end up in Egypt uh, because one of Israel's sons, one of Jacob's sons, is, was sold into slavery. If you guys have ever seen Joseph and, the, the, you know, Joseph and his brothers, they sell them into slavery because they're jealous so they get down, the whole family, because they're in this famine and drought, they end up in Egypt. And uh, what happens in Egypt is they go from this tribe of probably, you know, a few hundred people now to a nation of probably around 400,000 people by the, time the, by the time of the Exodus. So over those years, so they're, and then they're put, then the Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph, ends up putting them into slavery and that's where they are at this point. If you've ever seen Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments or the Prince, Prince of Egypt with the slaves, this is kind of where we pick up with Moses. Okay, so Moses is, so the God's plan, the first plan for Moses would be that Moses being raised in Pharaoh's court, think of the Prince of Egypt idea, he would rise to power and could have helped the Israelites out of slavery. So that was God's first plan. Was that was that raise up Moses in Pharaoh's household, and then he would rose, rise from power and then help his people uh, out of power or you know get out of slavery uh, and free them. What happens though? Moses kind of overreacts and kills an Egyptian. What he does is he ends up burying the guy in the sand, and then people start to find out. Jews start to find out, and and Egyptians start to find out. And where we see with Moses, he literally goes from the White House to the outhouse, okay, in a matter of moments, okay? Now he's, he, goes from, he goes from living the lap of luxury to flipping burgers, okay? I mean, that's really what he goes to. And it's just, you know, he was, he was up, uh, in the Pharaoh's court, which means he wore fine linens and wore jewels and, and was raised like an Egyptian and had all the finest things. So he goes from that to really, you know, the outhouse, really, to meaning that he's just now, now he's, now he's struggling um, to, 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 to make ends meet. Moses, the name Moses, literally means taken from the water. So if you've, if you've read the scriptures, uh, you know, where, the, where Pharaoh 
uh, tries to kill the, uh, the Hebrew children, Moses is saved. His, they put him in the water, and then he's drawn out of the water, and that's where she takes the name Moses. Now, when you read, when you, when you under, understand this story, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston's not bad. Uh, I mean, it's Charlton Heston. Uh, Prince of Egypt isn't bad, okay? But um, the newer Moses, the new one that came out, okay? That's all nonsense, okay? Ridiculous. You gotta wipe, if you've seen it, wipe it from your memory. Okay, I mean, there's some good scenes in it. But, I mean, there's some, some and, the, and the plagues are awesome. The way they do the plagues are really cool. But the story itself is ridiculous and not and not very accurate. So, I mean, there are some accuracies, but the, the majority of the story is not the most, most accurate. Okay, so we have the Moses' mission begins on Mount Sinai with the revelation of the divine name, which is I am who I am. And this is the one necessary being, the one who has existence in himself Every God is not him. They are all false. And so Jesus, actually, we see with our Lord, is the one who is and the one who is to come. So very similarity uh, in the language of I am who I am and the idea of, um, uh, of Jesus saying the one who is and the one, who's to, who, one is to, who is to come. Uh, what Mo, so God gives him this mission to go back and to free the Israelites, he goes back to Egypt, and what God said would happen did happen. Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And the release of the people was more of a political liberation. God wanted to lead the people out of uh, out, lead the people out to do two things, or wanted to lead them out of two things: physical bondage, which they were in as slaves, and also spiritual bondage. Uh, because the Israelites really practiced a religion that was more Egyptian than Israelite. So, you know, this is, there, this is 400, and 400 to 450 years after the Israelites had entered Egypt. So all these very, you know, four, four centuries later, they're focusing and their, their religion is more Egyptian than Israelite. So what God wants them to do is he wants them to uh, go out to the desert and to, as we'll see, worship him, but also serve, serve and worship him. Now, it is interesting, this is not in my notes, but I thought about this because someone, I was talking to someone about this recently. Mount Sinai, and it's from a video I saw years ago, Mount Sinai actually has um, a rock. They call it, um, what do they call it? Bu I think it's called Bush Rock. It's Mount Sinai Bush Rock. And in the mountain of Mount Sinai, if you take a boulder and crack it, and it's, the, it's, it's very different. It, all the rocks are like this. So you take a, just even, let's say you take a rock that you could hold with your hand, and you crack it and cut it in half. What appears in the inside of the rock actually looks like a, like a bush that's burning. And all the rocks in Mount Sinai, the whole mountain has this interesting, they call, they call it bush, uh, you probably could Google it and find it uh, tonight, but... Uh, a burning bush rock and it's very interesting that it's only on Mount Sinai that you can find this type of rock where literally any of the rocks you crack open so if you you break it open and you cut that one it opens up to again more of the same same color same uh, inside of the rock kind of interesting okay so Moses tells Pharaoh 
in Exodus 7, uh, 7.16, let my people go so that may, they may serve me in the wilderness. And the word serve is the key word here because in Hebrew, the words for serve and ministry are the same. The words for serve and ministry are the same. They both have a liturgical connotation to their, uh, to their meaning. God wants the Israelites serving him and worshiping him, not the false gods of Egypt, um, because that's who they were worshiping. So again, their worship was less Israelite and more Egyptian. They're worshiping all of these false gods. And he is willing to go to great lengths to make all of this happen. Then what we see is Pharaoh continues to refuse and then come the plagues. God shows his power over all the false gods of Egypt. So that's specifically what the plagues were. All the plagues were an answer to all those different Egyptian gods, the frogs, the gnats, the, the bull, the, the river, like the Nile River. The Nile was their life source for all water, and it was one of the gods of Egypt. So when, when God turns it into blood, he's saying, I can show dominance over, over this God. Um, the gnats and the flies and the crickets and the toads and all of those, the, the hail that comes from the sky. The sky, they had, they had three, uh, three specific gods in the sky. Uh, sh- what was it? Chef, nut, and something else. We, used to, I, we call them the, 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 uh, the three stooges of the sky. And uh, because these three, these three, these three, so when the hail comes and darkness comes and all, and then the firstborn with the, the last, with the last one, they're all kind of a, uh, a, a divine combat. It's actually called Theomachi. Uh, and it, Theomachi is actually divine combat when gods, gods battle one another. During the, um, during the uh, during the last the last plague, we now have the Passover meal, and for us, the Eucharist is our meal of freedom. And like the Passover meal, it is a freedom from Egypt. Um, like the Passover meal is the freedom. So we, so our the Eucharist is our meal to freedom. It Jesus is, gives it to us right before he dies on the cross, and it's a new Passover that we see happening with our Lord, uh, where the Passover meal for the Egyptians was meant to lead them out of, out of Egypt. Um, and as you know, there's the guidance where you would eat it kind of standing up, kind of with your goins, your, your loins girded. Uh, it had to be, there were certain prescriptions for the Passover meal of the time of Moses. And so it, they would eat it standing up because they were kind of in the, in the, movement, in the movement of ready to go, to move and to, to leave because of, the, of the, what was coming to the, to the Egyptians. Um, so this Passover meal has two kind of what types uh, in the Passover meal and the Eucharist. One is the hyssop branch, which was used to spread the blood on the lintel of the door and used to, spring, used to bring uh, sour wine up to Christ on the cross. So this, this hyssop branch was almost like a bush that kind of looked almost like, almost kind of looks like a paintbrush, a big paintbrush once, once it's kind of taken off of the, of the bush and the branch. 
And what they would do is they dipped it in the blood of the lamb, and they would put it over the doorpost. So, okay, so the, so the last, they would, they would cover the doorposts uh, of the first Passover with this. And what would happen was when the angel of God descended upon Egypt to kill all the firstborn, all the firstborns, the angel of God would pass over, pass over the homes of the Israelites. And that's where the Passover meal develops. Now, the Passover meal continues to develop over the centuries. So by the time, uh, the time of Christ, it looked different than at the time of Moses. But that's where we have this understanding of the Passover meal, that the angel of death passes over. In the hyssop branch, when they give Jesus the wine on the cross, they literally take the same type of branch and putting it up to the cross to give to our Lord. Um, now, in the scriptures, there's, there's, there's where they give him almost kind of like a narcotic, and he refuses the narcotic, but then they finally kind of give him the wine, which you guys will get into uh, with the Eucharist, but uh, with the, it's, it's kind of the, the fulfillment of the Passover meal of Christ. Um, because by the, time, by the time of Jesus, there were four cups you would have to drink in the Passover meal. And the cross ends up being the fourth cup for our Lord. That's why he says in the scriptures, if you uh, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours, that's the cup that he's talking about. Is the fourth cup is the cross. So, um, so again, it, the Passover meal developed over the centuries um, from the time of Moses. But that's the same thing they do. They take that hyssop branch and kind of put a sponge on it. With, and it's kind of filled with oil, like, a, not oil, excuse me, like a wine, kind of vinegarish type of wine. And, they, and that's what they give to our Lord. And that's what he drinks. That's on the cross. It's that last. So the hyssop branch is used in the Passover meal as well as on the cross. And then the Passover meal was only for the people of Israel. Only those who have been baptized can have, uh, can celebrate in the Eucharist. So the, the unblemished lamb is fulfilled in Christ, who is the unblemished and Lamb of God. So just like the Passover meal was only for the Israelites, those of us that are Catholic and baptized, we can only share in the, in the Eucharist as well. Um, and again, this I'm leaving so much out, it's just hard to get through all of this in, in, one, in one night with all of you, and I'm, my mind's starting to rush into uh, things that aren't in my notes, and I'm trying to focus on my notes instead of going off on tangents. Um, but the, the Passover meal is key in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Eucharist or in the, in the Passion of the Christ. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen the movie uh, The Passion of the Christ, the one that Mel Gibson did years ago, there's a reason why when they show the crucifixion scenes, they, keep the ju they, they juxtaposition back to the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist, the, 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 the meal itself, the Last Supper, is literally tied into the cross. What Jesus is offering at the Last Supper, then he's offering up his body. So, okay. So the first covenant with Israel uh, takes place in Exodus 19. And this, con this covenant has a condition to it. The people need to keep the stipulations to receive the covenant. Uh, in verse 6, it says a royal priesthood. And we see in verse 6 that there's a connection to Adam, going back to Adam from last week, who's also a king 
and a priest. And the Israelites themselves, if they hold the covenant to be true, would also be priestly. And we see that in Exodus 4 and 22 and Exodus 19 and verse 6. So Exodus 19, 6 and verses 4 and 22. So if the people kept the covenant, if they kept the stipulations, they themselves were going to act as the priests. They were there to, uh, all of them would act as the individuals that would guard and keep things. Uh, but what happens is obviously we know what's coming is the fall. The Sinai covenant has the potential to fulfill the Abrahamic uh, covenant, which is nation, name, kingship, and universal blessing, but it does not happen. What happens is the golden calf, and the golden calf is their fall. So remember Adam and Eve, they fall with the fruit. Noah again falls with the wine and the shame. He drinks too much of the wine. Abraham, they fall. Abraham and Sarah fall because uh, they, 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 they decide that God's plan isn't the best plan. And remember, they, Abraham takes Hagar and has a child with her. So there's that fall. And now we see with Moses and the Israelites, we see this fall, and it's the building of the golden calf. Um, which, when you read the golden calf in the scriptures, it's kind of humorous. Because Moses is up in the mountain, up in Mount Sinai for 40 days. And the people, they, they, they don't know where he went. They think he took off. They think they just left him, in, they left him out there in the desert to die. And what, what um, so then these, these leaders decide to uh, revolt against Aaron and his sons, um, who eventually would become the Levitical priests. And they revolt against them, and they start this huge party. Um, and uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to talk about it here in a second with the Ten Commandments. But they start this huge party, and, um, and, and, they, and they rebel, and, um, it, and it becomes a huge mess. And what they do is they, they, uh, they take all the gold that they have from Egypt, all the gold that they stole from the Egyptians that they took from out of Egypt, and what they do is they put it into the fire, and they, make, and they force Aaron, who's Moses' brother, to make the golden calf. And then Aaron doesn't really want to do it. So when Moses gets back down off the mountain, he's not really the happiest camper in the world. And he sees what they had done and they had created because it was a false god. It was an Egyptian god. And they, 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 they create this false god. And Aaron says to him, and this is the humor aspect of it. Aaron says, well, we threw all the gold into the fire and poof, out came this golden calf. I mean, that's essentially what he says to Moses. It's like we took all the gold, threw it in, and out came this calf, you know. But, you know, when you read it, it says that Aaron fashioned it with detail, and he was, you know, examining the eyes, and he took, he took the, the smallest detail possible to, it, to work on this golden calf. And, of course, he was forced into doing it. So, all right, the Ten Commandments. Here's a little humor for you before we talk about the Ten Commandments. All right, so if you're, if, you're not, if you're not familiar with History of the World Part 1, that's Mel Brooks, okay? I'm a huge Mel. My dad raised me right. I'm a big Mel Brooks fan. So, uh, 
Yeah, so I, was, I was actually rob, watching Robin Hood Men in Tights the other night. So, um, Okay, so the, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, it's the central focus of the Sinai Covenant is the Ten Commandments. Uh, then there are other laws, which is known as the Covenant Code in Exodus 21 through 23. So the Ten Commandments are the original and main focus. So when our Lord says that I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, the law that he's specifically talking about is the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, we see the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant occur. This is uh, offering sacrifices. So we see this offering of sacrifices as a priestly thing. And this relates to the firstborn sons that were consecrated back in Exodus 13. So what Moses does is he pours out the blood on the altar, and the altar represents God. And then the blood is poured upon the people like the waters of baptism is thrown upon us or poured upon us in mass during the renewal of our baptismal promises. So as a Catholic, when I first read this, the, the first thing that went through my head was like, this is just like baptism. Um, and it's what we see with, with when we're baptized as children or as adults. Um, but it's just like baptism. So we see Moses in this priestly act uh, where they take the blood of, the, of the, the sacrifice and literally he throws it and sprinkles it kind of on the people and where they share now in this priestly ability um, uh, of sacrifice. After every covenant, as I said before, what happens? Everything goes bad. And again, as I said, there's a fall, as I was saying, there's a fall with this uh, sexual connotations and nakedness with the, with the golden calf. What the golden calf brings in is idolatry and adultery. Um, and there is a key role with matrimony and why the covenants are broken with sexual depravity. Um, because it's, 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 matrimony was first established by God in Genesis 2.23. So when the covenants fall, when the covenants break, they all break with this kind of sexual sin. Uh, because that's where, the, that's where in, remember Genesis 2.23, uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the end of all creation, God um, establishes this creation with Adam, but it's with Adam and Eve, Adam and the woman, and they are then married at this point. It's the high point of all culmination. So all of these other covenants, they all break, they all fall because of the sexual depravity. Every one of the falls has to do with some kind of sexual depravity. And that's what we see with the golden calf in, as well. In Egypt, Apis is the god of sexuality and hedonism. So what this, what actually happens with the golden calf is actually it's a it's a big sexual party. If you guys know what that you know there's a there's a term for that, uh, and that's essentially what happens. Uh, so they fall back into their ways of the Egyptians, uh, and because this is what the Egyptian how the Egyptians would have had parties would have been around this golden calf. And that's what they say. They say, we can, you know, why did Moses leave us out here? And why did he leave us out in the desert to die? Let's go back to Pharaoh and show him that we can worship just like him. And that's where the fall happens. That's where the great fall, because it's like God brings them out. He saves them from Egypt. He, he releases them from bond, some spiritual and physical bondage. And then what, the, what do they want to do? They still want to go back 
and they still want to worship. Uh, they still want to worship these false gods like the Egyptians did, even though God saved them and brought them out of this bondage. Out of all of the people, out of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, uh, Aaron's sons, even though Aaron is forced into building the golden calf, it's his sons that remain faithful. And they come from, Aaron and his sons come from the tribe of Levi. Levi is one of the original 12 sons of Israel. And they are the first, they, they remain faithful out of, out, of the, out of the rebel rousers. They're the ones that kind of really remain faithful. They are the first Levitical priests who would then protect the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, everyone's seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, or not, not, not Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, the other one's the, chat, the Cup of Christ. Um, you know, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the gold box, okay, that the Israelites put the Ten Commandments in, and they put the the uh, they put certain things in 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 the uh, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they carried it into battle. Well, the Israel, the Levitical priests would be the first ones that would would um, protect the Ark of the Covenant before it was put into the temple. When they carried it around in the tents, and they would set it up in the tent before in the desert, and then they would when eventually when they would put it in the in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. So those were the Levitical priests. Um, and again, all of their descendants would then protect the temple. The only way to be a Levitical priest would be to come from the tribe of Levi. So you couldn't be, that uh, uh, David's interest, uh, we'll, we'll, and David, and I don't know if I'm going to cover it in, the, in this presentation, but it's in Father Who Keeps His Promises. David also does priestly duties, but David doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. But there's a whole reason why David gets to do those priestly duties. Uh, but that's the Levitical priests. They're the ones. And our priesthood today, Father Will and Father Chris, Father Ashaya, it's the fulfillment of the Levitical priests um, where they are, we're all, they're also protecting and guarding the Eucharist. Uh, and they're also offering sacrifice as well. So what would have happened if they didn't fall with the golden calf was all of the Israelites, all the sons of Israel, they all would have been these priests. They all would have been able to offer up sacrifice. But when the golden calf happens and then they fall from the grace of God again, what happens is these faithful sons of Aaron and then their descendants, they're the ones that remain the Levitical priests. Okay, or become and then remain. Okay, so golden calf is their fall. All right, all right, so let's go back to the covenant chart again. So we've got Moses as a judge. What I didn't say, too, is what we see Moses as judge, he is the one that distinguishes when arguments break, when arguments break out, he judges, and he's the one that says who gets what and who doesn't get it. You know, he becomes a judge in the role. Uh, and then after Moses, um, we see there's a whole period of the judges. We have all these different judges, and they all judge the different tribes of Israel. Samson, there's no Samson with the hair and the strength. He ends, he's actually one of, the, one of the original judges. It's a very small period of history in the, uh, in the, the history of salvation. Okay, so now we're going to focus on David and then the prophets. So with David, we see now David's role as king. The, the, the mountain that it happens on is Zion. He establishes a kingdom. 
And then the scriptures are um, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and Psalm 132, verse 9. So those are your, so that's that's David. And it actually fulfills Genesis 17. That's the the royal name. And then the prophets are kind of a, they're, they're, they're Hans, and Han talks about them and a father who keeps his promises. Um, when I, in my grad school classes, one of my professors went into great detail with all the prophets. And I'm going to give you two of the, what two of the prophets say. But then their role in the covenants is that they are the son of David. The prophets actually kind of take up, they kind of take up David's covenant and continue with it. Um, their role, again, is to be a prophet. You have major prophets and you have minor prophets. Major prophets are the bigger, bigger books, and then the minor prophets are the, are the, the smaller prophets. It all, also happens on Zion, and this is also during the time of the kingdom. And then specifically, the scriptures are Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, and Isaiah 55. If you've never read any of these scriptures, what I would do is, as you're reading a father who keeps his promises, read these scripture verses. Because they all make, it, will, it all makes sense as when you're reading it all together. And you're kind of putting it together. Again, remember, I'm giving you like the 35,000 foot overview of key things that are happening within the, co- within the covenant. It's way too much to cover in, in one night. If we had six weeks, seven weeks, where we could, st- where we could fill in, then I'd come in and do the covenants for six or seven weeks with you and really go into great detail. Um, I'd actually probably just use Genesis to Jesus just because that, that study covers everything, um, probably covers everything the best. Okay, so that's the, this is the beginning of the covenant with David. All right, so the Davidic covenant. Although Saul is king at this point, David is chosen among the sons of Jesse by God. David is then anointed with oil and now becomes God's chosen one. So this is kind of the story of David and how he got to become king. David kills Goliath. Everybody probably heard, okay, David and Goliath, all right. David kills Goliath, and what happens is that he finds favor with Saul and is asked to be part of Saul's court. He eventually marries into Saul's family, establishing a covenant with Saul, because he marries a daughter of Saul. David, though, is seen as better than Saul because David keeps, the term is hesed, or covenant love. He keeps the covenant that God establishes establishes with him. And God does, and God likes that because God does that with all of Israel. So this term is a a term uh, that we see in the scriptures. It's actually just, it's a Hebrew term for covenant love. Uh, when, when God establishes his covenant and his covenant with, the, with individuals, with all these different mediators, it's this covenant love, this unsacrific, this undying, self, selfless, uh, selfless love that he gives of himself completely and wholly. You know, just, uh, just pours himself out upon it. And David keeps that covenant. Saul 
Saul does things that he shouldn't be doing. He's told to destroy a, 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 a nation, but he keeps people alive. Uh, he's told not to sacrifice, but he decides that he wants to be priestly and offer up sacrifice. So he's, Saul's given all these prescriptions by God what to do and what not to do, and Saul just decides to blow off God and just decides to do his own thing. And that's why David starts to find favor with God because David become, kind of comes on the scene and God finds favor with him because David's actually obedient. He's listening to what God tells him to do and he's, and he's faithful to God where Saul's kind of in his own little world doing whatever, kind of whatever he wants. Um, and it's kind of interesting that the, the, the relationship uh, with Saul and David. David does not kill Saul because Saul is still anointed by God. So when you became king, you were anointed with oil. David actually ends up getting anointed with oil three different times. That's why we use oil, even today in the, in the, in the Catholic Church, why we use oil in baptism. We use oil in confirmation. Those of you that get, when you all get confirmed on the Easter Vigil, if, you, if, you, if, you, um, if you're still in the program and you're still in the process at that point and you feel like God's calling you home to the Catholic Church and you get confirmed, Oil, Father Will will actually kind of put oil on your head. And oil was seen as a sign of strength. It was a sign of of giving one strength. So that's why we still use oil in anointing of the sick. We use oil in baptism. We use oil in confirmation as a sign of strength. The Israelites, before they would go into battle, guess what they would do? Pour oil all over their shields and all over their blades because it, they, they, they believed that the oil that they were using would give them strength into, in battle. Because they were a smaller nation compared to a lot of the nations, so they always had to defend themselves. And they had, so when they would have to fight, they'd have to fight, and they'd have to go into battle. Uh, but that's what they would do. They'd put this so oil. So, so even though Saul gets anointed, Saul kind of breaks the covenant in a, in a way with God, because he doesn't really follow what... Um, he's supposed to be doing. But David knows that Saul, even though he's messing up and he's being disobedient and he's not listening to God, David still knows that Saul was anointed by God. And even though David has the chance to kill him numerous times, I mean, he even sneaks into Saul's camp one night, takes his helmet and like his, his, his knife, and then in the morning goes across the ridge and yells to him and say, hey, Saul, I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. I, I, we snuck into your camp at night when you, you, know, you had all passed out, and I could have killed you, but I didn't because I, I'm still faithful to you and I'm faithful to God. And Saul hated David and wanted him dead because he found out that God had found favor with David. So the, the, what I used to tell my high school kids is the Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the historical books are 10 times better than anything you'll get on reality TV, okay? I mean, it it blows away the Kardashians, okay? It blows away all of that stuff. I mean, you want good, you want interesting story. I mean, the stories between just David and Saul by themselves is is just interesting of of itself. And 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 you can tell I get excited talking about it because I think about it and rereading it, and it's just awesome. They're such great stories. So David does not kill Saul. Saul's anointed by God. Uh, and then David says that this is wrong and tells his men to do so because his, 
He he wants the David's men wants him to kill Saul. He's like he's he's disrespecting you and he's not doing what God's God's God wants him to do, but David's like, no, we cannot kill Saul, he's still anointed. So David establishes a principle with his men, and the Davidic covenant lasted, would last for 400 years. Uh, the last, um, let's see, is this where I am? Uh, nope. So uh, David was, David's covenant would last for 400 years, and it was free from palace curses and assassination attempts. Because he says, you do not bring your hand against the Lord's anointed. And then the main chapter for all of the Davidic covenant is 2 Samuel 7. And that's the main, and that's, there's more to come with uh, the Davidic covenant. We also see that once a central place for worship has then been established, once there was peace from all their enemies, David is now fulfilling this Mosaic plan. Moses was saying that once you had peace from all your enemies, a central place of worship must be formed. And that actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 12.10. So what David does is he establishes a kingdom with Jerusalem dead smack in the middle. And you've got, the, you've got when they come back with Moses after they return, after the 40 years in the desert, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, the tribes settle in different places in the holy in the in the uh, in in the promised land. Certain tribes are up north, certain tribes are down south. But what David does is he establishes Jerusalem, which wasn't a Jewish city at first; it was actually a Jebus a Jebusite city. He conquers Jerusalem and then makes that the capital of his complete of his of his kingdom. Because Jerusalem was smack dab in the middle. Think of the original 13 colonies. Washington, D.C. is right in the middle of the original 13. So that's why David establishes Jerusalem as, as the head. Um, and what he, what he does is he establishes this peace with all his enemies. He ends up conquering some of them. And then he ends up having this peace now, what he wants to do is he wants to build the temple for God. That's this central place of worship. Um, the ark and the tabernacle, which would be the place of worship, were not together, with, which caused confusion. And it, the idea of where does one go? Is it the ark or the tabernacle? So David, what, David wants to build a permanent place. He wants to build the temple and then set up the, ta the tabernacle inside. That's what, his, that's what he wants to do. However, God says to him, that is not your role. Your son, Solomon, he would be the one that would build the temple. And if you've ever heard, if you've ever seen anything referenced as first temple error, second temple error, this is the first temple error. The first temple was first established with Solomon when he then builds uh, the kingdom. When he builds the temple, excuse me. Nathan then tells, Nathan then explains the plan, what's going to happen. The Lord tells David that he is not to build his temple, but you'll have a son, Solomon. He will then build the temple. That will be his job. What we see with David is that David also becomes a father of many nations. This goes back to Genesis 17, Abram to Abraham, 
and where it says kings will come to, come from you or come to you, and you will be a father of many nations. He conquers the surrounding nations and becomes a father to all those nations. David then really becomes a ruling empire or an emperor of all of those other nations. So he starts with Jerusalem and then kind of goes out a little further and then goes out a little further and then he goes out to the ends of the earth. So all of these enemies that he once had, he ends up conquering a lot of them, fighting them, making peace with them, and then they are allowed to come and worship the one true God, which is where we see even in the Solomonic temple, once the temple's built, there's actually a courtyard for the Gentiles to come and worship the one true God. You guys, uh, the scriptures, if you're familiar with when when Jesus chases out the money exchangers, Okay, when he chases out those guys that were stealing, that's believed to be the Gentile court. Um, that's where the Gentiles could come and worship. So because in the temple itself, you had multiple courts. You had kind of where the Levitical priests were, where the men could be, where the women were, and then where the Gentiles could come. And so the, the, when the, eventually when Solomon builds the temple, uh, which has all these... Uh, has all these characteristics of the garden, uh, what we see in the Garden of Eden, uh, very similar characteristics of the garden, uh, then they're all worshiping God in this temple. That's where the, where, the, where the lambs are then offered for sacrifice during the Passover. All of that stuff happens in the temple. We also see David kind of becoming a, a type of church here. Um, we have the believers of, the, of Israel, we have the 12 apostles, okay, um, Jewish converts to this day, and all the, all the Gentiles. So David establishes this kingdom, which is really almost like establishing what Christ establishes with the church. You have all the, all the, all the faithful of Israel, converts coming, and then Gentiles coming in. And so what we see again, Abraham's seed is now being fulfilled by all of these promises, all the things that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 are now happening here with David. So 2 Samuel 7, so that's kind of where I, um, and then he conquers, the, he conquers the nations, becomes an emperor. That's where I left off. Okay, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God makes a covenant with David. So David will now build a, a Lord, a house, will not, but he will not build... So he establishes a covenant with David, but David doesn't build the Lord a house. He doesn't build the temple. Instead, the Lord will actually build David a house. And he does this by three ways. By house, God means family. God will give David now a son, which he makes reference to in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12. So he establishes his covenant with David. David wants to build the temple. It's not in God's plan at this time, but what God does is he establishes a home for David. So house, he means family, that God will give David a son. It also means that David will have a dynasty. God promises David that his royal heir will reign on the throne of the kingdom forever. So it's going to be family and now dynasty. And finally, he means also by house, he means a temple that God will allow David's son to build the house of the Lord. And that's in 713. 
And then in seven, uh, in Second Samuel seven fourteen, uh, verse fourteen, it says, "I will be his father, and he shall be my son." Very much covenant language, uh, which is a um, the the actual term for it is a filial. It's a filial relationship. Means it's a sonship. It's a relationship between a father and a son. So we see God establishing this sonship, this 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 relationship with David, giving David um, giving David uh, a home of family dynasty, and allowing David's son then to to build the temple. The son of David will be the son of God. And with David, the filial relationship will then be restored with him and shared with the rest of the nation. Because that filial relationship, that relationship with the son, was always established with the firstborn. And even though David wasn't firstborn, God then establishes that with David. That's why that sonship, that's why the, being the firstborn son was so important because it established this important uh, relationship with God. If you follow the king, you'll receive the blessings of divine sonship. And this is similar to what we have in the new covenant. And then there's things that I can't get to that are so good. Um, but uh, I would suggest reading him in a father who keeps his promises. Read David as priest and a liturgical leader. So that's where we see David offering sacrifice. Where Solomon, or excuse me, where Saul could not offer sacrifice, David is able to offer up sacrifice, but it's only because he becomes the king of Jerusalem, and it's tied into Melchizedek, who was also the king of Solom, which then would become Jerusalem. Uh, David is a typological figure of Jesus. There's a lot of different typology elements to the figure of, of King David and to our Lord. Uh, there's all these secondary features of the Davidic covenant as well. The queen mother, the prime minister, and also, which is a whole night, I could spend a whole night on it, is the Torah, the thank offering. The Torah and the thank offering are tied in to the Eucharist. So what I would do is, again, read a father who keeps his promises because it'll fill in all these holes that I'm leaving for you. But the idea of the queen mother, uh, because we see Mary as the queen mother, and we see the queen mother actually in 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, the prime minister is a very important role. Uh, David establishes uh, this, this role uh, with his, his prime minister, essentially. And what's the prime minister's primary job is to keep the keys of the kingdom around his neck. That was his job. So when the, when the king was off fighting or doing things when he was away from the castle, his prime minister was in charge. Oh, yeah, by the way, his prime minister is one of 12 guys. Hmm. Who, else is, who else had 12 guys? Okay, Jesus. Who was the keeper of the keys? Peter. Okay, who's considered the prime minister of Jesus Christ? The Pope. I mean, that's these, these, these ideas where you start putting this all together, and you're like, oh. when I first learned this in grad school, I, we were coming out of class like, like giddy. I was like giddy as a schoolboy. I was like, oh, this is so cool. I mean, just freaking out over realizing how connected the Old Testament is, is, is to the New Testament. But again, the prime minister's role would keep the keys around his neck. And he was the one that was kind of like the protector of the kingdom. Uh, you guys ever seen The Prince's Bride? 
You know, when they're storming the castle at the end, and all those guys, they all run away, and the, the last guy, and they, they, and they, uh, they say, uh, Wesley says to Fessick, uh, uh, give us, or they say, they say to the guy, give us the gate key, and he goes, I don't have a gate key, and he goes, Fessick, tear off his arms. He goes, oh, you mean this gate key, all right? <laughs> That's like the prime minister. That was what his role was, was to keep the key. Okay, now, of course, Andre the Giant, being that he is, you know, threatening this guy's life, to rip off his arms, but that's that's the that was the same. He's not the prime minister in that movie, but that's essentially what a prime minister would do. He's the one that had the key to get them all in. So, uh, and then the Torah. Oh my gosh, that's a whole nother. I, I, if I go into that, I'll never stop talking. Okay, so because uh, that's unbelievable. the thank offering is unreal. So, so those are things that I would look up in a father who keeps his promises. All right, a couple things with the prophets. Uh, prophet, in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, also in Isaiah 53, we have the restoration. It talks about the restoration and the son of David will happen, but not in the same way that people were expecting it. The people were expecting a military leader and battle. Really, in Isaiah 53, it talks about how the, the Messiah will suffer and suffer through an offering to God and an atonement for the sins of the world. So again, the prophets, the prophets were there to call out the people when they messed up, but they were also there uh, to talk about the coming of the Messiah. Because a lot of people thought that the way David showed up as a war, kind of as a war figure, uh, conquering his enemies was the same way the Messiah was going to show up. Um, now there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of typological references in the David and Jesus because they actually called David one of the terms that the, the the Israelites called David was was Mesha or Messiah was so he got that term as well. But the the the, the main Messiah, the one who would come to redeem all of the world and atone for all sin, uh, the Messiah, he was coming, but not in the way they expected, not in the same way as David. Jeremiah 31. 31 through 33 says that God will establish a new covenant. It's the only place in the whole Old Testament that we see the term new covenant. This is in Genesis 31, 31. And it's to restore uh, God's family and fulfill his plan to make men and women part of his covenant family. And then also see Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. Okay. I mean, what's, what's, what's amazing is that Solomon, um, oh, you know what, I'm actually going to talk about that in a second, so instead of trying to talk about it now, so I, that's why I have notes, because if I don't have notes, I'm all over the place. Okay, covenant chart, let's finish it up. The new covenant, the mediator is now Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus a high priest, He's a royal high priest. The high priest was the primary Levitical priests in the Old Testament. They were all the Levitical priests, and then you had the high priest, who was kind of in charge of all the priests. It, is, it gets established on Calvary. It is now the church. Christ establishes the church. And the scripture is Luke 22, 14 through 32. And the new covenant actually fulfills Genesis 22, 
but specifically Genesis 22, 18. So this idea of Jesus as the high priest is interesting because, as I said, the high priest was the one priest that was in charge of all the other priests. And each year, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, which was established in the temple, the high priest was the only one that was allowed to go in and offer up those sacrifices. And it was the high priest, the he would take all the sins of the people, okay, for the for the year, and offer all of that as well as sacrifice to God in the holy of holies, okay. And it would be the priest leading, all right. Um, and it was only, and he was the only one that was allowed to walk in there. Now, an interesting kind of footnote with the high priest, and some people find this funny, is that what they would do with the high priest each year is they would tie a rope to his leg, okay? A nice, big, heavy rope. Because if he ended up going into the Holy of Holies and dying, or if he said the wrong prayers, in, or if he said the, the prescription of prayers incorrectly, and God decided to smack him down and kill him, well, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies because the, the high priest is the only one that could go in there. So what they would have to do is kind of pull him out by the rope. Okay, now that was we, we don't know if that ever happened, but that's the practical side of this because the, 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 the high priest was the only one that was permitted to go in there. That's what we see with Jesus. He becomes the royal high priest because he's the one that offers up the sacrifice. Now we see with our Lord, he's both the sacrifice, the priest, and the victim, he's both the lamb and the high priest. Okay, so Christ is so this is again going back to. The, the cross and the, the new Passover meal, the Last Supper, but this new Passover meal that our, that our Lord establishes uh, with, with the church, with all of us. Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan for humanity through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Jesus is known as the new Moses, the new, Ab the new Adam. He's known as the true son of Abraham, and the true son of David. New Moses, new Adam. All of these Old Testament figures, again, we talked about typology. Laura talked about it a few weeks ago with you. Persons, places, and events in the, that are prefigured in the Old Testament, which are now fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I mean, I have a, I have a poster that's sitting in my closet from when I was a high school theology teacher of a hundred Old Testament Promises fulfilled by Jesus. I mean, a hundred. I mean, there's this giant, this giant poster I used to have in the classroom. So it shows all of these figures and these events and all these places. That's why when I was talking about the, the sacrament study that we did, all of the sacraments, you know, all of these, the, all the seven sacraments find their origin in the Old Testament and then, uh, are, then are brought to fulfillment with Jesus Christ. So first is as Christ as the new Adam in the garden. Returning to the garden, we see the first covenant with Adam. The culmination of Christ's fulfillment of that first covenant is on Easter Sunday morning when the, when the resurrected Christ appears before a woman in a garden, John 20, 15. 
The obedience, his, the, uh, his obedience, Jesus' obedience has undone the obedience of Adam, of the, of the disobedience. So Jesus' ability to, to die and to willingly die on the cross and to be obedient to what the Father has asked him to do has undone Adam's disobedience. Whereas Adam was disobedient in the garden, valuing his life more than the Father's will, Jesus was obedient in the garden of Gethsemane, praying, not as I will, but as thou will it. Luke 22, 39-44. There's even the idea where Mary's role in all of this too, the Blessed Mother's role, and I'm, I'm going to talk to you guys uh, in a few weeks um, that night on Mary for, 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 the, for RCIA. Um, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But Mary's... The church fathers see Mary's uh, as the mother, from, as the, or as the woman from Genesis three fifteen. Literally, when the angel Gabriel appears to her, the disobedience of Eve is then flipped by by Mary's obedience towards God's will. The um, the scholastics, which are like the the medieval church fathers, uh, in the Latin, it's actually. Um, in the Latin language, Eve is translate, translated into Eva. The first words to the angel Gabriel to Mary is Ave Maria. So Eva and Ave. So as soon as the angel Gabriel speaks those words to Mary, Ave Maria, it literally flips the disobedience of Eve, and Mary now becomes, becomes the new mother of the living. I mean, she becomes the mother of the church, and... She becomes the new Eve, and there's a whole lot. I mean, we'll talk about more about that that night as well. But she plays a role in all of that, where she literally that literally flips all of everything that happened in the in the garden. It now gets flipped there with 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 Mary, Mary's obedience. So we see Jesus as the new Adam, and then Mary as the new Eve. That's a whole oh man. I, I, I gotta stop talking. Okay, so I gotta focus on my notes. Um, but it's it's like the, the wedding feast at Cana. We see in John three, they're at a gar. You know, it's John. All right. I, I, if I have time, I'll explain it to you at the end. I gotta stop because I I will go. And Lita's probably behind the curtain here, getting mad at me. So I hear her laughing. So um, okay, sorry. I just I I love this and I go crazy and I my mind's all over the place. All right. So all right. So let's jump to uh, the son of Abraham raised from the dead. So according to God's instruction, in the Abrahamic covenant, there was to be the sacrifice of his only son on Moriah. So these are actually go back and forth. So, okay. So they're supposed to go across. Okay, on the, on the PowerPoint. So you see Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, we have the sacrifice of his only son on Moriah. In the new covenant, Jesus is now the only son of God. And Calvary is a peak in the Moriah Range. So you have the, the Moriah, so that's where Jerusalem is built today. Even the temple is built on the Moriah Range. In the Abrahamic covenant, we see that Isaac is made to carry wood up a mountain. In the new covenant, we see Jesus carries the wood of the cross up a mountain. The Abrahamic covenant, Isaac asked about the sacrifice. Abraham answered, God will provide himself the lamb. And then the new covenant, Jesus himself becomes the lamb of God. 
Now, it's interesting to note, if you've ever noticed, in art, we always see our Lord carrying a big cross. That's for artistic purposes, okay? In reality, when our Lord would have carried the wood, he would have carried the beam, the cross beam. That would have probably would have been about 100 to 200 pounds, probably about 100 pounds, not 200, but let's say 100 pounds, probably a good 100 pounds, all jagged, all full of splinters, had been used on somebody else, so that's where we see, like even in the Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson, they show the, the full cross, which is the way, again, we see it in art and in movies. Um, but he would have, really, our Lord would have carried. So when, when, the, when the Roman soldiers, when they push him and they knock him down and they prod him, no wonder he's, he goes straight down. Okay, imagine, imagine his, the bones in his, in his face were probably broken by the time he had gotten to Calvary because he had been falling, even, he, they, he had knocked him down numerous times. So that same wood, you know, the way our understanding of Isaac, a sacrifice of wood for a large sacrifice would have been like, imagine like carrying like a bundle of firewood, okay, like bundle, like large pieces on your back. That's what Isaac does. So we see this, this, this similarity between Abraham and, uh, and Jesus. And then in Matthew 1.1, right in the beginning of Matthew 1.1, Jesus is called the son of Abraham. All right, birth and deliverance. This is how we see Jesus' life and Moses' life are similar. Both are born under ruthless tyrants. Uh, both saw Hebrew boys slaughtered. Both found safety in Egypt and both came out of Egypt. Moses, Moses finds the comfort in Pharaoh's home in Egypt, and Jesus, Mary, and Joseph all travel into Egypt. You can actually go to the place that you can't, I don't think you can get into the actual, um, the actual spot, like the actual like area, but there's a, I think it's because there's a gate up in front of it. But if you go to, it, it's like outside, I think it's outside of Cairo, um, you can go to the actual home that's now, there's a church that's built over it where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph all lived during their time in Egypt. Both were tested in the desert. Jesus was tested by the devil in, in the desert for, uh, before his mission. So was, so was Moses. There's covenants on a mountain, both established covenants, Moses established the covenant on Mount Sinai. Jesus established the covenant on, on Calvary. They both appointed new leaders. Both were also transfigured. When Moses came off the mountain, it said it, it was like his face had shined, had, you know, was, 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 shine, was illuminated and shining. Our Lord, we also see our Lord's transfiguration. And who happens to be at Jesus' transfiguration is Moses. Moses and Elijah. Because Elijah is the greatest of the prophets and Moses is the giver of the law. And then both celebrated Passovers. However, Jesus completely and totally revolutionizes and transforms the Passover meal into the new Passover meal. Um, another good book. Great to read during Easter, or great to read during the, during Lent, is um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie. 
awesome. Oh my goodness, awesome. Okay, it's so good. Thinking about it makes me salivate, just wants to run home and read it right now, okay? So I'm become like a Pavlonian theological dog, okay? Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. Sorry, I get crazy when I talk about this stuff. I love it. Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie. It is awesome. Read it during Lent. Read it during the last parts. Like even I read, I read the whole thing during uh, the last two weeks of Lent. Lent and then uh, Holy Week. Couldn't put it down. It was awesome. Tells you, explains all the four cups to you. And, oh yeah, it's very cool. Um, but yeah, the, the Passover meal. He just so our Lord completely changes and, and, and transforms the Passover meal. Okay. The new Eucharistic covenant. So we see the Eucharistic covenant now built on Mount Zion. In Luke 22, verses 20, this cup, so the cup that is in, that ref, that's in reference in that scripture verse, this is the new covenant in my blood, is what our Lord says. And actually, it's a direct line back to Jeremiah. Jesus fulfills what Jeremiah said in 3131, that I will establish a new covenant. And then on the cross, the covenant is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit pours out the sight of Christ in both blood and water to all the nations. And the filial relationship, that sonship, is restored with Christ when he cries out, Abba, Father. Jesus establishes that relationship, that perfect relationship, that sonship with God through the covenant on the cross. And everything will now be transformed. The Holy Spirit will be poured out through the sacraments and the most, and the two, two of the very important sacraments, baptism and Holy Eucharist are also now given to the church. So what pours forth in this, where are my notes? I can tell you. Um, what pours forth from the side of Christ is blood and water, which the church, the early church fathers, saw as the sacraments of baptism and Holy Eucharist. The interesting thing is, and that is the establishment in the beginning of the church, okay? Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. In the garden, we also see Adam taken from Adam's side as his rib, transformed into his bride, and Jesus then becomes the new Adam. So, we have, so out of Adam's side, we have his wife. We have Eve, a bride. Out of the side of Jesus, we have his bride, the church. The other cool thing about this is that Christ becomes the temple itself. He is not only the high priest and the sacrifice, but he's also the temple. Because in the temple, um, the temple was, and I say, I don't have, is there, is there, there's no, uh, you don't have any dry erase markers for that board, do you? Oh, this would be sweet. Wait, I gotta show you this real quick.
geeking out. Okay, so. All right, so the temple was Christ become. All right, so here's Jesus, okay, on the cross. All right, out of the side of Jesus, you gotta, you gotta use your imagination. This is, this is blood. I don't have the colors, okay? And this is water, okay? This is the color of the water in Steubenville, Ohio, is orange, okay? Yeah, and she knows this to be true, okay? All right, so Christ on the cross. Then the temple, when the temple was eventually established, you had these four quadrants or these four sections. You had the Gentile court, you had the court for the women, the court for the men, and then the court for the Levitical priests. And that's, this is actually where, kind of where the Holy of Holies was, was in here. Well, in this courtyard is where when the, when the Jews would come to Jerusalem for the Passover meal, because that was the only place, I mean, that was like the highest place you could go, was Jerusalem for the Passover. In this court of the Levitical priests is where they would offer the sacrifice. So people would bring in their, in their lambs to be slaughtered. And the Levitical priests were the ones that were slaughtering all the lambs. So what would happen with all the lambs is you have all of this blood kind of piled up. Okay? Well, how do you get the blood out of there? You wash it out. They have to, so this is blood. Okay? And you, they would flush it out, and then this was all water. And it actually was, was flushing into the Gihon River. So just like blood and water came out of the side of Jesus, Jesus Christ, he is the establishment and the fulfillment of the temple as well. Because out of the temple, where you had the sacrifice of the lamb, he is the lamb, you also had the establishment of blood. That looks better when it's blue and red. Okay, It looks terrible in orange. Oh okay. uh, yeah, yeah. We can, I'll try. We'll try to redo it. So, but yeah, but this is very cool because then our Lord on the cross, we see he's he's the Lamb, he's the High Priest, he's the sacrifice, but he's also the fulfillment of the temple. That where you get the water and the blood coming out of the side of the temple, out of the side of Jesus. Okay, let me finish up. All right. So greater than Solomon. Jesus is establishing a kingdom that is greater than that of David and of Solomon. The kingdom was regional. Their kingdom was regional, where Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of God. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says he's greater than Solomon. And Jesus is the word of God incarnate, and his wisdom is that is greater than David's heir. David, Sol Solomon was known for his great wisdom and his ability to uh, settle uh, issues among multiple people. That's what Solomon was known for in his early life. Um, he was, he was, his wisdom was great. God asked him a gift that he wanted, and he asked for wisdom. So, so Jesus' kingdom, Jesus is saying that he's greater than Solomon, and he's wiser than all of, than, of David's heir. Uh, David and Solomon brought the Gentiles into the kingdom, and so does Jesus when he establishes the new covenant. So when David establishes his kingdom, he, 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 he fights all of his enemies, he makes peace with them, and brings them into his kingdom, and so does Solomon. And then Jesus does the same thing. 
The, the apostle to the Gentiles is St. Paul. St. Paul goes out and preaches to all the Gentiles. I mean, he preaches to Jews as well, but he's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And what's interesting is the feeding of the 4,000 that we see in the scriptures is different than the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 4,000 actually takes place in Gentile territory, where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Jewish territory. So Jesus even there is establishing the idea that the Gentiles are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. The authority that David and his prime minister had is now fulfilled by Jesus and St. Peter, because now St. Peter has the keys of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is priestly, prophetic, and kingly. Remember I told you, I talked about those last week. The old, those are Old Testament offices, priest, prophet, and king, that are then given to us in our baptism. We are priestly. We offer up sacrifice. We're prophetic. We preach the word of God. We learn our faith. And we, bring, we preach the word of God to others. And we're kingly. We serve others as kings would serve. Good kings serve their people. And then lastly, we see that the, thy kingdom will come. We see the new Torah, which again, read, the, read about the Torah in Father Who Keeps His Promises. From Thanksgiving then to Eucharist, the church spreads and grows from this point out. And that's where we get the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus becomes the Davidic king. The apostles would preach the kingdom. Because what's interesting, even in Acts chapter 1, the apostles who were with Jesus for three years still ask him, are you going to, re are you going to, are you going to establish the kingdom of David and Solomon? After three years with our Lord and after he resurrected, they're still asking him about the regional kingdom. He's like, no, the kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's a bigger, it's a bigger kingdom, much bigger, and it's going to last forever. And then the heavenly Jerusalem. And we enter into the kingdom every time we participate in the Mass through the Eucharist. 